It was World War II. More than 4,000 Japanese-American volunteers arrived at a place called Camp Shelby, an Army training camp in Mississippi. The War Department had created a new all-Japanese-American fighting force, the 442 Regimental Combat Team. Some of this select group is from Hawaii. The rest are from the mainland. Many of them volunteered to fight when they were behind the barbed wire enclosures of relocation centers where they had been moved in 1942, soon after the outbreak of war. At the beginning of World War II, Japanese Americans, not already in the military, were declared ineligible for service. Citizens were classified as 4C, enemy aliens. The government said it doubted their loyalty. But as the war dragged on, the need for manpower grew urgent. In early 1943... President Franklin D. Roosevelt announced the formation of the 442 and called for volunteers. I wanted to fight for the United States, the same as my classmates. Whether I lived or not didn't make any difference. Everybody was going to fight the war, and I wanted to be a part of it. Lawson Sakai was a college student when the call for volunteers went out. Lawson was originally from California. He and his family avoided incarceration by moving to Colorado. You know, we're Americans, but we're distrusted by the country. How do you reverse that kind of thing? We thought if we prove that we are as good or superior to any of the troops, all is forgiven. From APM Reports and the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, a podcast series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Saab Shimono. In this chapter, Japanese Americans fighting in Europe and the Pacific for their country and for their relatives in the prison camps back home. When recruiting began for the 442 combat team, a 21-year-old named Tosh Yasutake was incarcerated at the Minidoka camp in Idaho. At first, Tosh was happy about the call for volunteers. Before, we were not. Even if we wanted to go, we couldn't go. So now, at least we were given a chance to go into the Army. But then he got to thinking. The more I thought of it, the more upset, upset I got. And I thought that they ought to just assimilate us and not have a segregated unit. Tosh held out. He hoped the army would change its mind. But he also thought about his father, who had been arrested after Pearl Harbor as an enemy alien. Tosh's dad was in the government prison camp in New Mexico. Finally, in desperation, I, the last day I decided that maybe if I did volunteer, they might help my dad get released a little earlier, so I did volunteer. At first, most of the volunteers for the 442 combat team came from Hawaii. There were stories in the press in Hawaii of men who were turned away in tears. They were weeping because they were not allowed to volunteer for medical reasons or age or what have you. Jim McNaughton is a retired military historian at the Army Center of Military History. He's written extensively about the Japanese-American soldiers in World War II. 
McNaughton says the Army hoped to recruit a lot of men from the 10 incarceration camps. After all, there were 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry in those camps. Most were American citizens. It was very controversial in the camps, as you can well imagine. And uh, they had a much lower turnout than the War Department had hoped for. Rudy Tokiwa was living behind barbed wire at the post-incarceration camp in Arizona. He went to a meeting where men debated the idea of volunteering. In fact, for quite a while in the meeting, everybody was saying, Ah, the hell. Why in the hell should we go out fart for a damn country that locks us up? But Rudy saw it differently. If none of us volunteers, that's going to give Roosevelt all the ammunition he needs. He can say that we're more loyal to Japan than the United States. As it turned out, all the men in that meeting volunteered. As a result of their training at Camp Shelby, Mississippi, if they ever have occasion to fight in jungles, they'll be ready for it. At Camp Shelby, recruits from Hawaii outnumbered mainland boys almost 10 to 1. Americans of Japanese ancestry in Hawaii were never held in prison camps like they were stateside. Their labor was crucial on the islands. Meanwhile, a bunch of guys were already in uniform in the Hawaiian National Guard. But after Japan attacked the United States, the military took their guns away. Right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, they were told that they were not eligible for duty. And yet they still showed up to try and clean up all the runways and all the debris um, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Jennifer Jones is chair and curator of the Division of Armed Forces History at the National Museum of American History. The Hawaiians and the mainlanders didn't always get along. Camp Shelby, you know, was often the first time that the Hawaii volunteers or folks that were coming in out of the Hawaiian regiments were meeting up with mainland Japanese Americans, and they would fight. The Hawaiian guys were described as more rowdy and happy-go-lucky than their mainland counterparts. They also loved to gamble, playing cards and shooting dice. Since their families were not incarcerated, the Hawaiians got money from home. Meanwhile, Lawson Sakai says the mainland boys with families in camp had to squeak by on their army pay. By the time you pay your you know, laundry bill and this and that, you have maybe 15 or 20 bucks left, and you go down the row of huts and somebody's shooting craps in the room. Okay, put the money down and bang, you're out of there, broke. <laughs> so for the rest of the month, you know, you can't do anything. The boys in Hawaii were loaded with money. The Hawaiian boys gave the combat team a motto, go for broke. It's a gambler's term. It means shoot the work, go all out, do or die. The late U.S. Senator Daniel Inouye was one of those Hawaiian boys. He told an interviewer that he and his colleagues were horrified when they first learned their training camp was in Mississippi. After all, the only thing we knew about Mississippi as young men was that Mississippi was a state where they lynched people, that they didn't like colored people, and we were colored. But Inoa says the Japanese Americans were generally welcomed by the white folks in Mississippi. Something strange happened the first month we were there. We received 
a letter which was read by every company commander to the assembled company. And the letter was from the governor of the state of Mississippi. It went something like, welcome to Mississippi. While you are here, you will be considered to be white. Still, some of the soldiers at Camp Shelby resented Mississippi's Jim Crow segregation. As Japanese Americans, they knew only too well what it was like to be second-class citizens. One night, Rudy Tokiwa and his training buddies had been out drinking in a nearby town. They were about to climb aboard a local bus with a black soldier who was also in uniform, but the soldier was heading to the back door of the bus. I say, back, where are you going? He says, well, the blacks all get in from the back. Well, I says, hey, we can walk through the front. You sure as hell could walk through the front door. So we start pushing him through the front door. And so the bus driver says, the black man either goes through the back door for the blacks or this bus does not move. Oh, we solved that problem real good. We picked the bus driver, we threw him out, and we took the bus back to camp. Rudy and the other trainees spent a night in the stockade, but no charges were filed against them. The tense relations between the Hawaiians and the mainlanders eased after a trip to a small town in Arkansas. Daniel Inoue says men from Camp Shelby were invited to a social event by local Japanese-Americans in the town of Roar. I think the whole battalion went there. Each company sent, oh, about 15 men or so. And by coincidence, when we lined up, we're all from Hawaii. Not a single mainlander. The Hawaiians brought the ukuleles and their guitars. They looked forward to meeting some girls. As the troop trucks turned a corner, Inoue saw guard towers rising from the land. He thought it was just some military camp they were passing by. But no, we came up to this camp and stopped high barbed wire fences and with men there with machine guns and greeting us at the camp uh, at the gate were men in uniform with rifles and bayonets. And I thought, what in the world is happening? Then we look into the camp, and there they were. Japanese-American civilians, prisoners in their own country. The Hawaiians knew about the camps in the abstract, but most had never seen one. It was a first for Inoue. He said the visit was sobering. And when we left, the atmosphere was totally different because when we arrived, we were all singing and playing ukuleles and having a great time. And when we left, it was absolute silence, all the way to Mississippi. And I can imagine what was going through their minds. And I think almost all of us must have asked ourselves, would we have volunteered? Before the visit to the incarceration camp in Arkansas, you know, I couldn't understand why the Nisei from the mainland seemed so reserved and serious. Now he understood. Many of those guys had families being held prisoners in a camp. New bonds started to grow between the islanders and the stateside troops. These bonds grew deeper in combat. In the spring of 1944, Allied troops had been dug in 
on the Italian coast at Anzio for months. It was part of a massive push to capture Rome and defeat Italy. The fighting at Anzio was fierce. Much of it happened at night. At times, the bombs and artillery shells seemed relentless. Right above us, the sky suddenly become as bright as day. The German flares are burning, hanging almost motionless overhead in the night sky. Every tree, every house seems clearly lit up, and our old flak is getting furious and fierce. Down in the foxholes were Allied soldiers from several nations. They included men from the all-Japanese-American 100th Infantry Battalion. They had also trained at Camp Shelby. Japanese-Americans were fighting our battle, and fighting it so hard and so well, their entire outfit won a unit citation from President Roosevelt. That is the famed 100th Japanese-American Infantry Battalion in Italy. Major Casper Clow was one of the battalion's commanders. I found these men and officers to be first-class fighters in every respect. The records show that men of the 100th Battalion have won nine distinguished service crosses, 44 silver stars, 31 bronze stars, and three Legion of Merit medals. This stacks up well with any battalion in the Army. The 100th became known as the Purple Heart Battalion. Its troops pursued the enemy so aggressively they took a lot of casualties. They were also chosen for some of the toughest missions. The men were often physically smaller than the white G.I.s, but they carried the same heavy packs and weapons. German soldiers coined an admiring name for them, Little Iron Men. In spring 1944, freshly minted soldiers of the 442 joined their Japanese-American comrades from the battle-hardened 100th Infantry Battalion in Italy. They would fight together for the balance of the war. In autumn, the troops engaged in one battle that became famous back home. The 442nd Combat Team, composed of American citizens of Japanese ancestry, moves up to rescue the lost battalion of World War II. Here, over tough terrain in the Vosges forests of France, they advance in the face of strong enemy resistance. The action took place in mountains near the border of France and Germany. An army unit from Texas got too far out in front of its supply lines. German troops cut them off and surrounded them. The enemy poured on machine gun and artillery fire. The Texans became known as the Lost Battalion. They weren't lost. They were just trapped. Nobody could get to them. Lawson Sakai was a machine gunner in the 442. The Texans had been cut off for days. Their supplies were running out. The weather was terrible. It was raining. You couldn't get equipment by jeep or truck. Everything had to be hand-carried. We used everybody, cooks, uh, truck drivers, anybody that was able would haul ammunition, water, and some food. The fighting was really fierce. Fred Matsumura was an assistant squad leader from Hawaii. The machine guns in placement where the Germans were all well entrenched, we had a hell of a time getting through. Yeah. They have to just crawl from position to position, keep moving up slowly at a time. Yeah. 
Day after day, the Japanese-American soldiers pressed forward through thick forests towards their trapped comrades. German artillery hurtled from the sky. The men were constantly digging foxholes. The shells often exploded in the trees above them. Trees would burst, jagged, you know, branches of all shapes and sizes come flying down. Just as many boys were wounded or killed by tree shrapnel as metal shrapnel from the artillery. It's brutal. German machine gun fire was also intense. Joe Sakato of Arizona was guarding his unit's left flank with a Thompson submachine gun. They had just taken a strategic kill from the Germans. A buddy of his named Tanimachi was in a nearby foxhole. Sakato called out that the enemy was trying to retake the hill. Tanamachi, for some reason, he got up and says, where? And he got shot. So I crawled over this hole and picked him up, and gurgling, and he's trying to say the blood is coming out of his Then he went, body went limp on me, and then I know he died. In grief and fury, Joe grabbed his machine gun and ran at the Germans across open ground. He zigzagged, firing. Shot two, three guys, and then prisoner, a group of them coming out. White handkerchiefs were waving, and I made sure that Nobody behind them had a gun, so the rest of the troop came up. We took the hill. In his one-man charge, Private Joe Sakato killed 12 Germans, injured two, and captured four. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. It was later upgraded to the Medal of Honor, America's highest military honor. After six days of intense combat, the Japanese-American combat team broke through and saved 211 men in the lost battalion. But they took tremendous casualties. Historian Jennifer Jones. They went in to areas and were sent in where no other regular regiments would go. And they were sent in because they were expendable. Men in the 442 believed that ongoing racism in the Army meant that they got used as cannon fodder. But the War Department also used them to boost morale on the home front. The Yanks of the Lost Battalion, lost no longer, are bound for the rear. Ahead for every man is a well-deserved breathing spell from the long, bitter battle of the Western Front. And what was this newsreel's final assessment of the 442? Japanese by parentage, Americans in war. Most Japanese Americans in World War II served in Europe. The U.S. Navy never let them in, and that included the Marines. So for most, fighting in the Pacific was out. But a select group of American-born Japanese servicemen played a decisive role in the Pacific theater. In the year before the Japanese Navy attacked the U.S. Navy at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, Military historian Jim McNaughton. The leaders of the Army intelligence realized that war seemed likely and that in the event we went to war with Japan, the U.S. Army would need people who could read and speak the Japanese language. So the Military Intelligence Service was formed. MIS linguists translated captured documents and interrogated Japanese prisoners of war. Many of the linguists were born in the U.S., but had been sent by their family to Japan for schooling. 
In the MIS, they got trained to interpret military communications and commands. If you can interpret, you can interrogate, you can translate. Although the hardest part is interrogation. It's a battle of the mind. You have out outwit the other guys. Herbert Miyazaki was from Hawaii. He served in Burma with a legendary jungle combat team known as Merle's Marauders. He was adept at getting Japanese POWs to trust him. Most of them, many of them at the beginning, they just clam up. They won't say a word for 10, 15, 20 minutes. Then, are you comfortable? You want a cigarette or something of that sort? Then they'll have to answer. Once he gained a prisoner's confidence, Herbert would ask about the man's mother or wife back in Japan. Japanese soldiers had been told that the Allies would torture and kill them if caught. So the men feared they would never see their loved ones again. Now, that's inside their chest all the time. So they, they're going to get it out, you know, because it's uppermost in his mind. They're gonna, they just want to talk about it. You know, they just want to talk about it. Most of the Japanese soldiers were farm boys. Again, Jim McNaughton. These were not highly educated uh, men. They were just everyday farm boys who had gotten drafted into the Japanese army. So it was important to have Nisei, who could speak everyday colloquial vernacular Japanese, to question them. The Japanese soldier were never told that there were going to be a POW. You either give your life up, you don't give up at all. Paul Benai of Los Angeles was an MIS linguist. He served in New Guinea and other parts of the Pacific. So when we talked to them and gave them a cigarette and, and, and treat them right, and we asked them about their unit and what they were doing and what the information was readily given to us. They never were told as an American soldier that if you're captured, you give them your name, rank, and serial number, and that's all. Some MIS linguists took part in exceptionally risky operations on the front lines. They always had white soldiers by their side. Moving around on the front lines of combat is dangerous for anybody, but it's especially dangerous if your face looks like the face of the enemy. We had maybe three or four bodyguards. MIS linguist Herbert Miyazaki. Because in the event that a skirmish takes place, the Japanese come in and uh, we go after them and we capture them. Now, our own people can mistake us for the enemy. In one successful combat operation, Merle's marauders tapped into a Japanese telephone line running through the jungle. A linguist from the MIS was there to translate. In a radio interview after the fact, Lieutenant Mike Piazza told a young host named Ed Sullivan about the mission. It just so happened at that time a Jap commander was giving complete orders over the telephone in Japanese. And we got the uh, positions of uh, an ammunition dump, which happened to be only 1,100 yards from where we were. And we naturally destroyed that quickly. That's right, we did. <laughs> and at the same time, he gave an order for the division to be moved at midnight. And they were coming right in our direction where we were established across the road. So the Japanese-American translated this and told you that a Japanese division up north was about to attack at midnight. That's right. And what did that lead to? Well, uh, we pulled a fast one on them. We cut a trail that the Japs knew nothing about and pulled out of there. But just before we pulled out, we laid down a heavy concentration of mortar fire. And uh, we later found out that there were 600 bodies out there after we'd pulled out. As a result of this tip from this Japanese-American boy, 600 Japanese were killed and you escaped. That's right. Having that kind of high-quality 
military intelligence allowed commanders to fight smart. It allowed them to attack where the enemy was weak, to leapfrog large concentrations of the enemy and outmaneuver him like a, an enormous chess game. What do you think of their treatment here in this country? Have we been fair to the Japanese-Americans? That's one thing that's irritated me considerably since I come back, the attitude of the people uh, towards these loyal Americans. I don't think they should be treated the way they have been. U.S. government officials encouraged such publicity about Japanese-Americans in military service. Jim McNaughton says they were looking to the future. Certainly the leaders in the War Department knew that uh, over 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry had been incarcerated in 10 so-called war relocation centers. Uh, But to allow Nisei to serve in combat units, the War Department saw as a way of almost rehabilitating the uh, Japanese-American community by allowing them to join in the fight. Government propaganda described how incarcerated Japanese-Americans supported the war effort. The so-called evacuees made camouflage netting and raised plants that could help meet the military's need for rubber. They grew much of their own food so as not to cut into the ration domestic supply. The evacuees cooperated wholeheartedly The many loyal among them felt that this was a sacrifice they could make in behalf of America's war effort. I think the government realized that they couldn't keep these people incarcerated forever. Historian Jennifer Jones says the PR and propaganda was meant for the domestic audience. To let people know, you know, it's safe to let them back into um, the areas of the United States that we've removed them from and that um, they were also a vital workforce. This was very, very important for establishing the public perception of Japanese Americans as Americans, not hyphenated Americans. At the end of the war, artillery units of the 442 peeled off for combat in Germany. They rolled up at the gates of the Koffering and Landsberg subcamps of the infamous Dachau death camp. We were approaching Dachau. None of us knew what Dachau meant, really. We figured it was just another town. Virgil Westdale, a Japanese-American soldier with the artillery unit, was there. We noticed there were about four or five guys uh, up ahead of us, kind of on a small hill with some trees. And we wondered what that was, and we weren't sure. But as we approached, we could see that they were in striped clothes. Vertical striped clothes. It was really shocking to see these walking skeletons come by. And even worse to see them trying to salvage food that we would throw in uh, garbage pits. The American soldiers had been told not to share food with the starving prisoners because they needed to be fed gradually. Gorging on food could hurt or kill them. That order didn't last very long because you can't not feed a starving person. You just got to feed them. So that's what we did. And a lot of the guys pulled their blankets out of their pack and wrapped them up, wrapped up these prisoners because they were freezing, very cold. At the time, I, I really couldn't equate this with our relocation centers where my parents and sisters and all my friends and relatives were with their concentration camps, which were 
physically not very different. There were barbed wire, there were barracks. Nelson Akagi was there too. To go liberate a concentration camp while our own folks were in concentration in, in the United States, we didn't even think that kind of th thing would happen. It was hard to take. There was no publicity of the encounter at Dachau. Historian Jim McNaughton says the overall battlefield achievements of the Japanese-American soldiers had a significant impact on the well-being of their relatives back home in the incarceration camps. No one reading a newspaper could mistake the subtext, which was, why are there families behind barbed wire when these brave, loyal American soldiers are out there bleeding and dying for their country? It just didn't make sense. In fact, by the fall of 1944, the Supreme Court finally ruled in such a way that it allowed the federal government to end the mandatory evacuation orders and planning began for actually dismantling the camps. This was no coincidence that it was around the same time that the 442nd was battling the uh, Battle of the Lost Battalion. These two, I think, were very connected, the, what was happening on the battlefield and what was happening in the uh, innermost circles of the government. Some 33,000 Japanese-American men served in World War II. Hundreds of Japanese-American women served as nurses or in the Women's Army Corps. And the 100th and the 442 were among the most decorated outfits in the war. proud members of the 442nd Infantry Regiment, mostly American-born Japanese, swings down Constitution Avenue in Washington for another ceremony in their honor. There are 3,600 Purple Hearts in this outfit, earned in the bitter battles of Salerno and Anzio. In the 1946 ceremony on the Ellipse in Washington, President Harry S. Truman awarded the 442 its seventh presidential unit citation. As the combat team presented its colors, Truman draped a ribbon over the staff bearing the regimental flag. You fought not only the enemy, but you fought prejudice, and you've won. Keep up that fight, and we'll continue to win. The prejudice that people of Japanese ancestry fought during World War II both on the battlefield and as prisoners in American incarceration camps, took a heavy toll. The question of whether they should spill their blood to show they were loyal remained unsettled for many, including the writer Hisaya Yamamoto. Her family was imprisoned at Poston in Arizona. Her younger brother, Johnny, volunteered for the 442 and was killed in Italy. He was 19. We are repeatedly told that if it weren't for the sacrifices of the 442nd, that we wouldn't have been allowed to go back to California as soon as we were. But what was done to us was wrong in the first place. I don't see that they should have had to do that to prove anything. Many Japanese Americans living behind barbed wire came up with ways to fight for their rights in camp, and they resisted mounting pressures to prove they were patriotic, their actions were sometimes deeply controversial, as we'll hear in the next chapter. 
You've been listening to Order 9066. Please help us spread the word about the series by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saab Shimono. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Palmhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Murayama, and Emerald O'Brien. Mixing by Michael Osborne. This podcast is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanefuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Dencho, the Japanese-American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese-Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Dencho. You can see photos from the incarceration period and find links to additional resources at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can upload photos of any objects you may have that are linked to the incarceration. You can see a gallery of what others have contributed. And you can also find a link to the Smithsonian Online Exhibition, Writing a Wrong. Special thanks to the Gopher Broke National Education Center for use of their oral history archive. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Tarasaki Family Foundation, the Henry R. Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shalop.